The Partially Examined Life relies on your support. There are lots of ways you can provide this support, and some of these are cheap or even free. Learn how at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. I can tell you that this episode, like many of our recent ones, has a supplementary discussion for Partially Examined Life citizens or $5 Patreon members. That one concerns essays by Richard Rorty and Leo Strauss that we considered using for this episode but ended up not doing so. And those authors are highly entertaining, so you might want to check that out. Enjoy the show! This is the Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who once thought about doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 193 is, what is liberal education? And we read a couple of essays by Jacob Klein, The Idea of Liberal Education from 1960, On Liberal Education from 1965. We read a critical appraisal of the St. John's College curriculum by Sidney Hook from 1944, and Undemocratic Vistas by Martha Nussbaum from 1987. We're joined today in our conversation by Pano Canelos, president of St. John's College in Annapolis. I am Dylan Casey in Annapolis, Maryland. This is Mark Lentenmeyer being trained as a gentleman in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Seth Paskin, active and broadly distributed in Austin, Texas. This is Wes Alwyn in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And this is Pano Canelos in Annapolis, Maryland. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. So we should say this is not supposed to be just an extended commercial for St. John's. <laughs> This is a legitimate philosophical topic. I'm sure that a lot of what we'll be saying here is launching from our previous discussion on uh, Bloom's The Closing of the American Mind, which was also about liberal education, although that book had so many idiosyncratic twists and turns. We want to have a more topic-oriented discussion here. I think last time a lot of our conversation did boil down to the specific model that's at St. John's, you know, that Wes and Dylan are most familiar with, where all you read are the great books where there's a great emphasis on historical sources as opposed to contemporary sources, etc. But I think there are a number of distinct questions here, right? Is it valuable to read great books at all? Is that an essential part of an education? And if you accept that, which is a pretty low hurdle to meet, and we can talk about the psychology of learning that underlies that, why the articles that we read, why Klein, a former president of St. John's, and why our guest thinks that that's useful to read those books. And then once you admit that, should that actually structure the whole curriculum in this way? That, you know, that's a further question. Along the way, I think to answer those questions about what it's for and why it's valuable, if it's valuable, we will say a lot about what it is, because I thought Klein, mm-hmm. in a very interesting way, more precisely than Bloom, tries to say what it is and how it's distinguished from other sorts of more everyday conception of education. Yeah, the way I wrote it down is when you say what is liberal education, dividing into sort of what its end is, what is its goal, and then what is its form? What kind of curriculum or method or structure is associated with it? If there is a single one, I mean, certainly there's the one that is at St. John's, but there's other ones. So, Well, I'm probably going to throw a wrench in that right from the beginning. Please do. And just a slight anecdote here from something that we just had yesterday on our campus. We had a a gathering at the end of the year of faculty and staff to kind of reflect on the year and talk about the college and sort of give ourselves a moment to reflect on the purpose of the college and what we should be looking for in the near future and the longer term future. And as a kind of exercise, I brought in, we watched a TED Talk. So we do sometimes look at things that aren't great books. (laughs) And it was very secondary literature, secondary literature, (laughs) secondary, yes, YouTube, in fact, it was just meant to be a kind of a prompt, really, an excerpt of this talk that we looked at was titled Start With Why. And it was kind of 
an exercise that probably a more corporate institution might use, but I thought it would give us a framework. And I also knew it would rile everybody up and get them talking. So the start with why exercise was if you picture a kind of bullseye, and at the very center bullseye would be why, and then the next concentric circle would be how, and then the third one would be what. And what this fellow in the TED Talk was saying is that successful organizations begin with their why and then move out to their what. So they, they reflect upon the why of what they're doing and then figure out how they're going to do it, and then finally what it is, the thing that they're delivering. And I suggested, again, kind of provocatively, we had everybody working in groups with these sort of bullseyes, and I suggested provocatively, I said, well, what if we just all agree from the start that the how is to deliver the St. John's program? Knowing even deliver was a kind of contested term. You know, you got to start <laughs> Like <somewhere>. teach. <laughs> like teach. And let's just start there and let's think about, so why are we doing this? What is the sort of foundational principles behind a liberal education, St. John's education? How do we do it? We provide this curriculum, this program, the program as we call it. And then what do we do to do that? You know, you can sort of imagine all the things that you need to do to provide the program. You have to hold seminars. You have to hire faculty. You have to raise money, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think we were 10 minutes into the exercise before the conversation turned something like, well, what if St. John's is a place where you can't distinguish why from what? In other words, what if the practice of doing something is the reason for doing something? What if these things are not distinct from one another? And so I just, as a kind of opening salvo, I throw that out there, that this is already the kind of things that we've been churning together as a faculty and with our staff, just thinking about what is the foundational reason that we do what we do and how do we fulfill that mission? So this is very much related to classical philosophical questions, right? Plato, can virtue be taught, was right in the Mino, one of the first things we studied in this podcast. But we're often accused, especially early on, of, and this is very relevant to what we're going to be talking about, a liberal education, of the things that we're studying being divorced from practical concerns. That's a salvo against philosophy in general, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Unless, Mark, you think the state of your soul is a practical answer. (laughs) And Klein actually is going to emphasize that what makes an education really liberal is that it is liberated from immediate practical concerns. But I thought it was interesting that we're studying this very impractical topic, this soul-oriented topic, but in a very practical context that what Pana was just describing is, how are we going to actually structure our curriculum? What are we going to do to these young people's minds? (laughs) When you're an educational institution, and, and mm-hmm. being an institution is one of the obstacles that we've learned in our reading to, to education, actually, yep. or potential obstacle. But as an ed- educational institution, there is a kind of boundedness to it. You have to put up some guideposts. You have to have a perimeter within which you're doing what you do and outside of which other things happen. You know, there's you, a beginning and an end. There's right? a beginning and an end. And I mean, that is what a curriculum is. A curriculum is the scope of what you offer and what is encountered in any kind of educational institution. But I think in at St. John's, the curriculum has a, let's say, a more ontological status in the institution than you may find in, in some other places where a curriculum may be instrumental. I think it's worth, to Wes's point, going through the Klein articles in particular a little bit for how he goes through what a liberal education is. But before we do that, I wanted to uh, point out that there are a variety of different experiences with liberal education here. Because you yourself were at Val 
Prezo or no? Most recently. Most recently. I was the dean of the Honors College there. Yeah, because you've been here at St. John's for just over a year. That's right. Yeah. And then Wes went to undergrad here. I taught here, but I went to Michigan State University, but in a sort of self-conscious way, was thinking about liberal education, trying to make one for myself. Seth went to Reed. And Mark, you were in the residential college at Michigan, right? I, I was not in the residential college. In fact, I was really? ideologically opposed to anything like the <laughs> residential college. I thought that anything that even approached the St. John's model, even though I didn't know anything about St. John's, was an abrogation of my freedom to motivate myself to study what I was most interested in and pursue those avenues that I found most useful. Little did you know you were just shackling yourself with appetite. <laughs> Sorry, Mark. My experience was very different than Mark's. I self-consciously chose Reed because it has a very traditional and rigorous curriculum that would constrain me, but also formed the basis for what I consider to be two things. One is the lifelong community that I've had of Reedies who share that experience. And then also, very practically for me, my liberal education has been the foundation of my approach to my life in the corporate world, as well as a business outside of the corporate world and personal, you know, my personal relationships have all been very much informed. So this is a very live issue for me. And given what recently happened at Reed, a highly emotionally charged one. So I will try to be rational. What recently happened at Reed? So over the last couple of, Reed has a core course that all students are required to take in their freshman year called Humanities 110 a.k.a. Greece, Rome, and the Middle Ages. It's a set of foundational texts. You start with Hesiod, you read Herodotus, you read Thucydides, you read Aristotle, Aristophanes, you know, Sappho, you name it. And two years ago, a group of readies calling themselves Readies Against Racism started demonstrating and disrupting the humanities courses and demanding that we become less white and a variety of other things. There's been a number of different strategies. The students who wanted to study it walked out with the teacher and went back to their office. They've harassed teachers. There were administrative reprimands and so forth. Anyway, the curriculum gets reviewed by the faculty and the administration every decade, and they've accelerated it two years to look at it, but they've already conceded that they're going to break up Hume 110 into four distinct areas, which I think are going to be like a Greece and Rome component, like an Eastern, like China maybe, component, a Mexico City or Mexican, Mesoamerican kind of thing, and then a Harlem curriculum. And I'm vehemently and violently opposed both to the strategies that the students took as well as the decision by the administration and the impacts that it's likely to have on our broader community. And so I think I've delivered that pretty calmly, but it belies the, the amount of ache that's in my heart right now. When did this happen? Just in the last like month or so. It's been in the Atlantic oh. and the New York Times and a few other. It's played itself out in the national media. And one other thing that's pissing me off is that it hasn't played itself out in communications from the college to its alumni and backers and supporters. So we haven't gotten any communication from them saying, let us tell you why we're doing this and what it means to our ethos and why we made this decision. So I'm likely to show up in Portland sometime later this year and stage my own demonstration. 
Uh, so you'll have we'll, we'll have to say hi to you because Liam is starting at Lewis and Clark. Oh, awesome! In August, we'll I'll be going to Portland a lot. Cool. And just to clarify my own situation, just in line with what Hook says about alternatives to this very centralized, very prescriptive Great Books Education, because I was in the honors program at U of Michigan, and then being a philosophy major later, there were plenty of courses I was required to take, including a Great Books course at the very beginning. I I tend to think that as things got on, that it was more, you have to take something in this area and something in this area so that you have a well-rounded education rather than you must do all these things. So I think it's very much in the mainstream of requirements for what are considered liberal arts programs around the country. This Hook article is from 1946. It's not quite up to date, probably either about St. John's practices or about practices at other liberal arts colleges. But I think the, the consensus is that Yes, of course, you need some of this. There's some value to some of the great books, but with regard to which great books and do they have to be white great books or can they be from China or f- from somewhere else? So should we begin with the, the shorter Klein article? Because it's interesting, it's sort of, even though he doesn't mention Heidegger, it's sort of, he's pivoting, I think, when he mentions sedimentation off a Heideggerian notion. And it's something we saw in Mill as well, where even true received opinion must be kept alive in some way. And it's naturally the effect of techne and the technical to sort of make things rote and so sedimentize. To sedimentize. Yeah, there you go. So on page three, in the process of perpetuating the art, those insights tend to approach the status of sediments, which is to say, as we make our language more technical and as we develop the art. So those, those insights tend to approach the status of sediments, that is, of something understood derivatively and in a matter-of-course fashion. And I think this, you know, he'll go on essentially to say that there's sort of a meta-level approach to things where you're not simply learning for the sake of practical application exactly or to master the discipline or the art per se, but to reflect on its assumptions and what he will call the condition of the possibility of such undertakings and to sort of resist this sedimentation. Well, you know, if the um, line that follows where you left off there, the technical terms begin to form a technical jargon spreading a thick veil over the primordial sources. I think that's an important part of this de-sedimentization. De-sedimentization, um, right? That's a, that's a terrible jargony word. That's a jargony word. But the idea being that one of the ways that we we start to kind of unpack the things that have accumulated over time is we have to kind of pierce through them and go back to the original sources that make everything that's happened since then seem a little bit stranger and more alien. And that's an important part, I think, of you know, an important assumption that most great books curricula make, that there is a kind of, you start off in a kind of beginning, you pierce through the layers between now and then, and you go back to this originary moment, or an originary moment, if not the only one. That's why most of these programs start with the Greeks, or in some programs, they go back a few steps further, and you'll read Gilgamesh or, or, or some, you know, sort of Mideastern text in that. If you can get through that sediment and see what lies behind it, you have a better chance of kind of clearing away everything that obstructs or everything that has been settled and everything that has been calcified over time. That would seem to be related to the 
first rule. So one of the things that Klein does in this article is he lays out a sort of guiding principles or calls rules of liberal education. And the one that Wes took us to on sedimentation is the second rule. The first rule that liberal education requires for the learner as well as the teacher practice a philosophical reflection and the awareness of its guiding role. So what you were saying, Pano, makes me think of there would be the content as well as the the instrumental reasons for reading an old book. Because a lot of them, one of the characteristics of them and what makes them interesting is that they're often asking these these big why questions. And so you end up they're well, they're philosophically reflective. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you're starting off with having that attitude, though Klein will go on to say that part of a liberal education all the way through is to maintain that philosophical reflection in everything that you're approaching. And it informs the way you do science, the way you do the most practical things, the way you study language. Yeah, but the first, I mean, part of that process is to unsettle everything as well. Yes. You know, and unsettling it. I mean, you you can still be sort of preserving something, but you have to be able to create that sort of critical eye. You have to have that meta art that's going to allow you to, to unsettle what has become sediment. And I think one of the reasons why we turn to the ancients is that they're both alien and familiar. Mm -hmm. So that they're, you know, on the one hand, you know, if you really take a hard look at classical and in this case, sort of the traditional use of the word classical text, what you find there are the seedbed of many of the themes, concepts, topics, ideas that are still alive today, but in an environment that is kind of rich and alien and that. And so it assists us in that unsettling process to go to, again, that originary source and think about, you take a concept, liberal, for example, liberal education that these these essays deal with. What did the Greeks mean by that? And in kind of unpacking that, it helps us to readjust our sight and think about different shades of meaning that have accumulated over time and perhaps look askance at how we use those words today. Yeah, sort of like that oft oft mentioned thought experiment where we, we imagine, you know, what would aliens think looking down at what we're doing and our particular customs and opinions and so on. And it's, as you said, strangely enough, it's a way to get an alien perspective. But I mean, the familiarity is important in the sense that she's the other side of it in the sense that they're, it's aliens talking about the same thing. So we might use certain words, like even the word liberal and sedimented ways that have their origins in the past and sort of have this long genealogy. And it's not simply for the sake of establishing an authority of meaning or something through that genealogy, but just, I think, the fact that at those origins, we get this way of looking at something that's so familiar through an alien perspective that I think is better geared towards allowing us to look at, to examine our own assumptions and opinions and gives us a better chance of maybe discarding some of them. The assumption that we can go and encounter something alien and pull from it a shared experience presupposes that there is some sort of shared experience possible. I think in one of the other articles, he mentions that the presupposition of the curriculum is that there's such a thing as an internal and unchanging human nature. I don't think that's necessarily the right conclusion to draw. But if you begin with the approach that you have the possibility to learn from something that you might consider alien to your experience, but identify that there are shared experiences whether it's love 
war. I'm, I'm put in mind of Herodotus, right, who might be one of the greatest examples of how to encounter the alien and then sort of pull shared experiences or understandings out of it, right? And I think there's something to learn from that type of text. Just to clarify, Seth, that attribution that human nature is unchanging, that is a hostile attribution by hook to the uh, St. John's position. Well, I, you know, I would, I would say it's interesting because when you look at the Greeks, for example, and if, if you're reflecting on, on their kind of alien is a little too strong of a term, but I can't find a better one right now. The sort of alien quality. Unfamiliar. Uh, unfamiliar. Uh, that's probably their unfamiliar quality uncanny quality of Greek civilization compared to our own modern, postmodern civilization. It's not simply that they present a different model, but as you were pointing out with Herodotus, they also model how a society or culture might look at the other. I'm thinking of Aeschylus as the Persians, for example, as sort of this, another encounter with the alien and that. So it's not simply that we sort of mine them for their differences, but we mine them for the resources that allow us to think through those sorts of differences. And again, there's a kind of multiplying effect when you can turn to a culture as far from our current day as the Greeks are and find that as we wrestle with them, they have been wrestling with others. Well, I like this image of resources rather than the way Wesk is characterizing it, actually tracing the history back. Because so just as an example of this sort of linguistic analysis, right, you were saying the concept of liberal education itself. And in both articles, Klein starts off by saying what liberal education meant, liberal, it's for free men as opposed to slaves. That to be liberal means that you're not busy all day doing practical things. Well, okay, so they were free from drudgery but then they devoted themselves to the city. So political things could be a practical thing in itself. But also, according to this analysis that he ultimately gives to Aristotle, it gives us the ability to self-actualize. What makes us distinctively human is our ability to reason, to learn. And so the way that we are both most human and the way that we are both most free is to be pursuing learning. And that is etymologically a matter of something that is takes up our leisure time. And Aristotle was saying that part of what education is about is how to use their leisure time wisely, is that it's not just leisure you might think of as amusement, but as we discussed in the Nicomachean Ethics, the point of life can't be just to amuse yourself, so it is to exercise this faculty. So I've just given that that example, just using the etymology of liberal, that gives us an interpretation of what a liberal education should be. And I like that as a hermeneutic strategy, as here's what liberal education, but just looking at the history of the word doesn't really tell you in itself, this is the way we should be studying. It doesn't actually prescribe anything. It just gives you resources to work with. And by the way, I was trying to warn against genealogy, per se, Okay, advocated. Well, I, mean, I think that a function of the kind of genealogical exploration of a term like liberal is, again, just to kind of unsettle our current understanding of that term. So if you understand that it's metamorphosed over time, it causes us to question whether or not our opinion, our settled opinion of the meaning of liberal is, in fact, the final word on that. And in terms of thinking about liberal education as education of a free man, as, as posited by Aristotle, and I think Klein's in that can't for the most part, unless I misread him. There's an interesting tension there, because on the one hand, liberal education presupposes the leisure 
of a gentleman. So liberal education is for those who have a certain degree of freedom. On the other hand, liberal education is that which makes one free. Exactly. And so right there, there are two different meanings of liberal, liberty, freedom, however you want to characterize that, kind of squaring off against each other. And I'd add a third thing. It's an education for those who are free. Mm -hmm. It's an education that would make them free. And then is what is, maybe it's the same thing, but what is needed to make good free men? So that's underlying, I think, both Aristotle and Klein. That moral component about whether you're going to end up with somebody who's good <laughs> as a result of getting a liberal education is probably a little more controversial about whether that's actually true. But that speaks to something that I've been grappling with the question of liberal education ever since joining St. John's, as you can imagine, and, <laughs> and preparing some talks to give and thinking well, as deeply as I can, as a man who actually doesn't have leisure <laughs> in my current position, I've been thinking as deeply as, as time will allow on me. You were on a conference call just before that. I was, yeah. I wonder if one of the ways to kind of get to what you were just saying, Dylan, is so on the one hand, liberal education there's presupposes a kind of freedom from material need and freedom of time. On the other hand, it makes somebody free by freeing them from ignorance, freeing them from presupposition and opinion and that. But I think there's another kind of freedom that, that is kind of beneath the surface of those and beneath the surface of liberal education is maybe a more chthonic sort of freedom. And that is simply that human beings all have a kind of agency, kind yes. of mysterious kind of agency, which applies both to those who have the leisure to pursue liberal education and those who don't. And that agency is what makes us moral beings. And so somebody who is the privilege to be liberally educated brings with them the kind of fundamental agency of being a human being and then has a kind of responsibility to allow liberal education to shape that agency in the best possible direction. So they're moving towards, they're learning what the best and better ways to think about the world, do things within the world might be. But that kind of agency, I think, is universal. And that's why I think liberal education ultimately doesn't simply have to be for the gentlemen or those with leisure, that liberal education is available more broadly because it's anybody who, ha we all have that kind of agency and we all, we all have a kind of moral urgency around sorting out what to do with this fact that we are creatures who make choices for better or worse. So it might be helpful to segue into the other paper. We probably can come back to this one because right now we're still working on liberal education, what it is opposed to the form of, because at the end of this paper, he's pretty explicit about what the components of a curriculum he goes through. Yeah, he does this derivation of yeah, the exactly. other components of the liberal. Which, of course, ends up with the St. John's curriculum. It does seem a little ad hoc in the end. I just wanted to connect the idea of desedimentation, which ultimately in this shorter paper, he connects to intellectual clarity. So on page five to six. Select a material which would compel the learner to reflect and to get rid of the sediments in his thinking so as to enable him to reach the level of intellectual clarity. This material is available in the great documents of human seeing, hearing, imagining, and understanding. So that's a beginning of a rationale for the types of things that we read. He gives a list of authors of great books. In the other paper on page six, or PDF page six, page 162. I wanted to connect the notion of metastrophe and perigoge, perigoge, or turnabout conversion to the desedimentation. 
this is in the context of the notion of reflecting. So what we're doing, he says, is we're trying to, rather than our typical conception of getting to know or to inquiring is to know more, we're treating converting the known into the unknown. I think this is a great section. It's in the context of talking about what kinds of questionings there are. I just wanted to connect that to this idea that this why I am talking about is now of a different kind. It does not lead to any discovery or recovery. It calls myself into question with all my questioning. It compels me to detach myself from myself to transcend the limits of my horizon. That is, it educates me. It gives me the freedom to go to the roots of all my questioning. I can begin to understand that even our gossiping may ultimately rest on the transcendent power of this why. The kind of questioning that he's talking about here is wondering. We detach ourselves from all that is familiar to us. We change the direction of our inquiry. We do not explore the unknown anymore. On the contrary, we convert the known into an unknown. And this is related to the way in which anything known and anything we discover is tied in some way to things that we already know. And there's this complicated relationship. He puts forth this notion of discovery and learning as creating something new or remembering something. <laughs> and the remembering something, of course, reminds me of Socrates' notion of everything we know is a recollection of something else. And then there's, does he associate with Aristotle, this generative form of questioning? We need to give an example of what this metastrophic, this turnabout is. So one that I gave in an early episode is, what's a chair? We all know what a chair is. That's, that's obvious. What is a chair really? Okay, I'm converting the known into the unknown. There you go. That's, I'm, I'm in wonder. There could not possibly be a more charitable example. <laughs> I think, you know, we should push very heavily on the way that he uses the word wonder. I mean, he says, we wonder. And we mm -hmm. burst out with that inexorable question, why is that so? I think this is a maximalist wonder. It's wonder, capital W, like that thing where you see the chair and all of a sudden, boom, there's this kind of epiphanic moment where it creates in you an emotive sense of wonder that this thing is there, that it exists. And that prompts a kind of reevaluation of the object itself. And that's the conversion moment. But it has to be kind of soul stirring. I mean, I think that's where wonder comes from. Often when I'm speaking to groups of people that I will begin by saying there are many fine institutions of higher education in the U.S. and the world, but it's my belief that St. John's College is the only institution where wonder still lives. And I mean it in this sense, in the sense of rediscovering or turning or this kind of metastrophic experience of things that are, had been familiar to us, turning them over and looking at them afresh. I'm not sure if this is the best example, but I will give it. When I came to the United States when I was nine years old, for some reason I had become, at nine years old, I know this sounds absurd, this dogmatic atheist. And I got off the boat from Ireland and I was trying to convert other kids and shocking them and telling them how it did, just didn't make any sense, the idea of God. And I... You're trying to convert them to atheism, which is kind of a funny thing. Exactly. I was an evangelist. I was a preacher. <laughs> And I took for, I think part of the sort of underlying assumption of my reasoning was a very materialistic framework. In Ireland, I'd gone to these Catholic schools and I never thought of myself as Catholic, but I was vaguely religious. And then I decided I didn't believe anymore and I went hardcore the other way. But my mom, who idealized St. John's in that program and made it the thing that she thought all of her children should do because she had been taught in the classroom of a professor who had gone to St. John's, she introduced me to 
Plato and certain paradoxes of materialism, basically. So how do you account for truth without appealing to formality? So for instance, but if there are two birds in a tree, you can think of the ontology that underlie an assertion about the there being two birds in a tree. You can point to each of the birds, each of the material objects, but you can't point to two. In a very basic way, she pointed me to the paradox of structure and formality and the problem of trying to say what sort of being that is. And so in a very Platonist way, because my mom is kind of an uber Platonist, did that. And I was immediately, my sense of wonder, which I had had not that long ago as a kid, reignited. It wasn't that I suddenly became a Platonist, but I, I was suddenly open to these questions in a way that I hadn't been before. So it's easy to approach the world, especially as a result of education, with a certain kind of knowingness that precludes further inquiry, precludes an openness to things that actually might be questioned. I'm very much an advocate of the notion of wonder, the desire to cultivate wonder in in young minds and so forth. But I want to take a little bit of an issue with the characterization here that it's like apophantic. I think what Wes just described and more what I think is my experience and the purpose of the liberal education is you don't have an apophantic experience where you suddenly say, oh my God, I'm creating three-dimensional objects out of this two-dimensional field of vision that I have. My brain must be doing some work against the manifold of intuition. You don't get there by a bright light in the sky. The wonder for me is what these texts and these thinkers introduce is you have to go with Mino. It's a dialogue. They don't come and hit you over the head with the scroll. They make you read it. And it's when you walk down the path with Socrates and then the, the slave boy realizes that he's actually learned some geometry. You're like, wait a second, how do we actually? And then it starts to call into question things that you take for granted, your common experience, things you have never questioned before. So the why is born in questioning. Turning the known to the unknown is about realizing that maybe the limits of your knowledge are not what you thought they were, but you don't get there just through a traumatic event. Even if wonder extends over longer periods of time or it can be cultivated, isn't it the case that there are quintessential moments that distill what we're talking about down to, if you bring up Mino, right, there's a moment in Mino where the slave boy is confused but knowing, right? So he understands that the length of a diagonal can't be rendered in terms of a ratio of the sides. But he doesn't know what the answer is. To me, that's the characteristic of wonders that on the one hand, you have a bunch of stuff that you know, but now all of a sudden things have opened up that you don't know something now, yet you feel like you have a direction, a path or a way that you're seeing something, even though you don't know what it is that you're seeing. That to me is the experience of wonder. And for me, at least, it is often there are punctuated moments even if it carries me along for the distance. It's like maybe sort of trivializing it, but there are kind of aha moments where I understand it. So there are the characteristic aha moments where I like, I know what this is going on now. And this, what we're talking about now with wonder is where I have no idea what's going on, but I know more than I did before. Well, why is it so exhilarating? Why is it? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, let's get at the effective component of that because it, used to be an, an ecstatic experience for me. I know as corny as it sounds at St. John's, having those moments of, of really of wonder, not a feeling like, okay, now I know something new. I have increased the storehouse, the contents of my storehouse of knowledge. But Yeah, maybe it's because in some sense it's ultimately experiential and not rational. It kind of stirs rather than kind of clicks in the brain. And, and I'm just thinking of the meaning. I mean, the, the slave boy comes to understand something, but the real object of epiphany in the dialogue is the reader of the dialogue. 
who's supposed to come sure. to understand something. And this is why Plato writes dramatic dialogues and doesn't write a treatise, right? He wants us to kind of be witnesses to something and then be moved by something and then experience a kind of almost a subrational kind of experience where you get attracted to, drawn to what's being presented. You feel stirred by something. And then later on, you start to fill in the rational outlines. I think that's part of the appeal. There's an emotive base to wonder. And that's why I think wonder is an important word. It's an erotic experience. It is an erotic experience, yeah. But I think it's also, it's something about coming to realize that there's something mysterious about the world. For me, it did feel like almost a quasi-religious experience. It did seem like, oh, wow, I found something that's meaning inherently meaningful and inherently important in a way that other stuff is not. I'm trying to connect that here to, I know we didn't officially read Strauss, but it's connected to the bloom. And this is sort of, and to Aristotle, that this sort of contemplative life really is a fulfillment of a human end. It is most, it is when we are most actualized when we are in this sort of pure, pure questioning is the right phrase, but it addressed for me sort of a meaning of life. I was just trying to make sense of what Klein's argument is in the longer article here, where he talks about the basic desire to know things around us, to add to our storehouse of knowledge. He says to go from that undisciplined sort of knowledge, what we get from experience to actual disciplines requires this questioning, requires this inward turn. Ultimately, what he's going to get at is you can't just study the sciences. You can't just study math the way that people do in grade school, in high school, as just this is calculus, this is geometry. That to really understand those things, you have to get at its foundations, which is a matter of getting at the history and trying to get at how the everyday world, people were just scribbling things in the dirt and looking at shapes in the world. And somehow there was just a questioning of that process itself. There was an inward turn, this metastrophic reflection is what he called. And that's what, according to Klein, gave rise to a systematic geometry. And so you get at that by reading, this would be an argument for reading the original Euclid, right? This is one of the controversial parts of the curriculum. Why do I need to read the history of mathematics? Why do I need to read the history of science? This is something that was totally lacking from my own education and I didn't miss it a bit, but maybe that's because I never gained as a result of lacking this, I never gained that deep knowledge of the way this turn. Now, if we're also characterizing the metastrophic reflection, not just as a questioning, a wondering about what all this drawing shapes is about and to systematize it, but actually having wonder, having this epiphany about shapes, those things seem two very different things to me. And I'm not convinced, for instance, I, I could picture a very business-like society that it has its practices. Socially, they kind of figure out best practices and they codify this in some way and they call that a discipline. And nowhere in there is anything like the reflection of wonder, you know, what we've been describing as the metastrophic reflection. I wasn't under the initial impression that the metastrophic reflection was the means to the development of disciplines, but I might be wrong. Is that the impression? I know, Mark, that seems like the impression you got. Is that the impression others got? No, it's not. I mean, I okay. thought that was a characteristic of liberal education. Yeah, I thought we sort of ascended this hierarchy from elemental education associating with experience, which is essentially suffering. And then we get the formalization into disciplines. And then we get something, then we get a transition to what he calls passionate or serious curiosity. And then finally, we talk about metastrophic reflection. You would only get it after you have some kind of experiential education that then you end up asking why about it. 
Well, the question is where formalization comes in. Don't we formalize these disciplines before we ever get to the point of wonder, or do we need wonder for that? Maybe he sort of gets to this on 164. Yeah, and is that a social question or a question about psychology, right? It's a different thing to say about the history of how disciplines were developed and about the process that a human mind goes when being educated from having rough and ready experiential knowledge to a discipline. I'm kind of pausing on this question of the order of things and where we were wondering where this metastrophic questioning comes in and it seemed to me that it's always in reaction to something you already know. So it's already a reflection and you have to start from some place that you already know something. And then you're asking questions about, you're asking why. And in this part, alongside that is Mark's question of what is this kind of formal education? Uh, so on page 164, it's talking about formal disciplines and how there's reflecting and pursuing our exploratory questioning. We arrive at formal disciplines of arithmetic that is the science of numbers and the relation to which all our computing is based. There's no limit to the further exploration of these formal disciplines. They can enlarge and refine, branch off into other disciplines, combine and support each other, and finally encompass whatever might be knowable in our world. They become all the scientific and historical disciplines taught and learned around the globe. Their acquisition is called formal education. Formal education grows out of elemental education, but is rooted in it. At the end of this Section. It's only when we dedicate ourselves to the radical metastrophic questioning, when we free ourselves from the ever-present concern of our burden life imposes upon us, that formal education becomes liberal education, that formal disciplines become liberal disciplines or liberal arts. So the way Klein is formulating it is formal education is something like all the stuff that we learn about how to do things, about what happened in the world, in some ways maybe the technes of things that we do, and the liberal education would in this metastrophic questioning would get us to a point of wondering about those things and understanding, well, I guess a point of wondering about them. Well, can I read another quote from 163 right before? Sure. Elemental education that comes through us through experience and mostly through adverse experiences congeals into many kinds of habitual opinions and traditional beliefs. But human questioning never stops. In particular, there is the tendency to go to the roots of our experience, to explore the not yet known or the once known but forgotten. On the other hand, we are bound at some point, at least, to reflect in wonderment and detachment, not only all that offers itself to our exploration, on all the visible, the audible, the intelligible about us, but also on our doing this questioning and exploring, on the means and tools that we use in this enterprise, on ourselves as questioning and exploring beings. This metastrophic reflection, in conjunction with our exploratory questioning, leads us to the establishment of those formal disciplines I mentioned before. So, Okay. So that sounds like you were right, Mark. Yeah, I think throughout this article, he's giving kind of an indirect argument for having that Bloom was complaining about how education now, you can take a thing over here and take a thing over there. It's not unified. And Klein is trying to say, right in our experience itself, he's giving this proto-phenomenological account of, see how counting comes right out of language? See how grammar comes right out of how all these elemental pieces of our experience give rise. And I think we have to say it's both psychologically and socially because it's kind of in the nature of the things themselves as they relate to us as human beings. This is ultimately a thing about human nature, that because all these different subjects arise out of a common thread and the reason that they came up as independent disciplines is because of the structure of our questioning process as human beings, just qua human, therefore 
for all to really understand the various disciplines. Again, you can't just go study chemistry. I want to be a chemist. I'm going to study chemistry. No, you have to get historically and logically and ontologically at the basis for how chemistry comes out of experience, how it relates to math, how it relates to music, how it relates to these other things. Therefore, you need a unified liberal education to ground all of this. But I don't think the argument is primarily about let's get better at formalizing our disciplines. I don't think that's why to do this ultimately. I mean, ultimately, the argument is what he says on 165 to 66, which is man's most proper and specific character is his desire to know only in pursuing the goal. Pursuing this goal is man really man and really free. It goes back to, again, this ancient idea that the contemplative life is our end. It is the way in which we become most who we are. In other words, it's morally important rather than simply important in some utilitarian sense or the betterment of disciplines and the betterment of society. It is to appeal to Bloom's sort of formulation that it's about the state of our soul. And in fact, even though Klein formulates a kind of curriculum and the content of what you should be studying out of it, at 166, he leaves it open that it really is the way you do it rather than what you do. And I think he would make the argument that the kind of curriculum, probably for the reasons Mark articulated, that there is a argument for what the content ought to be that puts you into the kind of curriculum that ends up being St. John's as being at least a very good way, if not to do it. But on 166, he says, the idea of liberal education then, whether you accept or reject it, is not definable in terms of some peculiar subject matter. Some applied sciences may well fall outside its scope, but by and large, any formal discipline may form its vehicle and basis. It is not the subject matter that determines the character of studies as liberal studies. It is rather the way in which a formal discipline, a subject matter, is taken up that is decisive. Whenever it is being studied for its own sake, whenever the metastrophic way of questioning is upheld, whenever genuine wonderment is present, liberal education is taking place. I remember reading Bloom when I was in, earlier I was trying to sort of make this liberal education for myself. And this way of thinking about it, that is really about the way in which you do it, the way in which you approach the education as being decisive as opposed to the content itself being decisive, really rang true to me and made me think, you know what? I could have a liberal education that was centered around learning how to fix a car. And that might be hard. Well, does fixing a car count as a formal discipline? Because the content does matter to the extent that it's the general criterion involving a formal discipline. I don't want to push too hard on it. I think if we're going to get down a rabbit hole that maybe isn't, yeah, ends up not really being very illuminating. The point being, you have to sort of, as a real practical matter, be engaging in some kind of formal discipline and doing the activity. But the decisive portion is the way in which you engage in that as being the centerpiece of your liberal education. So, of course, you want to pick something that is going to be rich enough to do the other work that you wanted to do. So my contention that, oh, you could do it, it might require a very peculiar kind of uh, education in the mechanical arts mm. of fixing a car in order to make that happen. Can we just say see Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance in our episode on that? <laughs> yeah, but I... Yeah. Not exactly. Well, I, I wonder what is this way, and it goes back to the, you know what he calls the metastrophic way of questioning. And I think the criterion for the metastrophic way of questioning is whether or not the object of our inquiry, the object of our formal study, is causing us to reflect back critically upon ourselves. So that we see ourselves as the knower, as the inquirer. And there are some things that are going to 
be more conducive to that and some things less. And that going back to the study of mathematics or the sciences, when we read Euclid, the ultimate object of study is the self. <laughs> so that's why it's the sense of wonder, the sense of discovery that freshmen often find in, in reading Euclid, that that's the critical moment in that part of their education, not whether or not they can understand formally how to apply geometric proofs or, or that. That's the metastrophic moment. And it's amazing to me how often I hear from students that came here and started their freshman math class with Euclid, that they had that kind of moment where they realized that was what they were discussing wasn't math it wasn't geometry. It was something radically larger than that. And it was something having to do with the human condition. Well, that seems like a good way to end part one. Folks can come back next week or go get the Citizen Edition at partialexaminedlife.com and hear the whole discussion right now 